I want to begin with a scenario today and ask you to imagine what if you were called to jury duty and you were actually assigned to a case. And if you've ever been called uh, by the county, sometimes you go to uh, uh, the courthouse, go through all the proceedings, and then you never get called to do anything. I, I have only been called to jury duty once in my life, and once the lawyer heard I was a minister, I was immediately kicked off the panel, and I got to go home. So there's many advantages to being a, a servant of God in this day and age. But I'd like you, um, from your own perspective, in your own lot in life, to consider, okay, uh, you are now on this panel of jurors, and you're about to hear a case. What would it take to convince you either of the innocence of the defendant or the guilt? If you had to sit there and decide somebody's life, what would it take to convince you one way or the other? Well, I would suspect one of the things you'd want to hear is the evidence, whether it's on the defense side or whether it's on the prosecution side. What evidence do we have against this defendant which might push us in a direction, yes, he's very much guilty, or no, he's innocent. It, it, it's pretty clear. I would suspect you'd also want to hear testimony from eyewitnesses. Were they there? What did they see? What did they hear? And that would help to build a case either against or for the defendant and would obviously sway you one direction or another. Here's another one, and I don't know how many jurors actually do this since I've never been in that situation. I wonder how many actually watch the defendant's reaction as the trial is going forward. Do they look guilty? Or do they look innocent? I would suspect that all of these things together would help you make a decision. And of course, every juror wants to make a fair and correct decision because that judgment that you make will ultimately decide for most of these defendants how the rest of their life proceeds, whether they get to go free or whether they spend time behind bars. But what if as you sat there listening to all of this evidence that was provided to you about the defendant, what if the majority of you and your fellow jurors came to a, a pretty obvious conclusion, but there was one juror who actually seemed to be 180 degrees opposite of the conclusions that you had reached? What if they had listened to the same evidence, saw the same eyewitnesses, watched the same defendant, and they came to a completely different result than you did? And it might be mind-blowing to you. The 11 of you who go, well, he's obviously innocent or he's obviously guilty. Was this person even in the same courtroom that we were sitting in? Do they work with a different reality than what we work with? Imagine that situation. And if you can understand that situation, then you understand very well the situation of our lesson this morning. It's exactly that situation that we find Jesus in, in this portion of his ministry. He's providing proof and evidence of his claim as Messiah, the Son of God who came to save us from all of our sins, the one who declares those sins paid for, and then the proof is given to us at the cross when God the Father accepts his sacrifice. And yet there were so many who simply rejected what was right before their eyes. These will be the verses of our main study today, and I won't read them at this point because in a few moments I'm actually going to show you a clip that puts these words back into their context, and you will hear these words at the end of that clip. Before I show you that clip, there's a couple insights I would like to offer so that this all starts to gel and make sense. And the first is the timing of our lesson. It actually takes place on Tuesday of Holy Week. And I found this graphic, and it does a decent job of summarizing Holy Week, but it doesn't do justice because of all the days of that week, aside of Good Friday when the Lord gave his life for us, Tuesday was actually the busiest 
day of the week. Now, the graphic does show that he had confrontations by the religious leaders, but it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of just how busy Jesus was. He spent the majority of his time at the temple teaching. And if you look at the graphic, you notice I have up there, he taught five different parables, and then there were 13 different life lessons. And you can imagine the amount of time and the tender care the Lord put into wanting to instruct these people. And we know, <clears throat> excuse me, we're getting to the end of his ministry. And his heart still breaks for the many that didn't know about God's promise of love yet. And so he, if you will, bends over backwards to instruct, to teach, to lead. And of course, sprinkled in all of that, we have several confrontations by the religious leaders. And Luke is the one who tells us things had pretty much reached the breaking point. They were so frustrated with Jesus and they so much despised his claim to be the promised Messiah that it was on Tuesday they finally decide he has got to go. We have got to kill this man. We have got to get rid of him. Otherwise, our whole religion and our whole place in society is going to be destroyed. And so they set about doing just that. The other thing I'd like to offer a little bit of insight has to do with the video itself. And we're going to have two different contrasting groups of people. And it's the larger context. And, and I want you to understand going into it uh, the, uh, the interesting dynamic that the Holy Spirit provides for us. Because amongst those groups, one of them we're told was there were a group of Greeks in Jerusalem at that time. And that's why I told you the setting. That week before our Savior's death was the week of preparation for Passover. And it was one of the three major festivals of anybody who practiced Judaism, which would bring the adult males to Jerusalem as part of the celebration. These Greeks were, basically it's inferred or implied to us uh, that they not had only heard about the promise of Messiah, but they seemed to put faith or trust in his claim. They want to find a way to speak to Jesus. They want to see him. They go to Philip, and there, there are certain theories about why they went to him of all the disciples. And then Philip goes to Andrew, and together they go to Jesus and talk about this group of people that want to sit and talk with him and learn from him. In contrast to this Gentile group of, of, of people who wanted to worship, uh, we have the Jewish group of people. And part of the context shows us there's this tremendous pushback against Jesus and his claim as Messiah. And part of that we've already talked about in past lessons, and we'll make reference to that again. But it's this context that really shows us one of the reasons why people became so violently opposed to Jesus. Now, the video clip actually displays that as a, a form of physical violence. I can't tell you for sure if things got this heated. But at very least, the record from John tells us that there was this intense pressure and confrontation between not only the religious leaders, but even those amongst the Jewish people because of things that they had been taught, what they should expect from Messiah. And as we unravel this lesson, one of the things we're going to find out very clearly is they had been taught a lot of wrong things. The interesting thing is, and what serves as part of our theme today is, even in rejection, we can find that God the Father brings glory to his Son, and God the Son brings glory to the Father. Here is the context for today's lesson. Some Greeks were among those who had gone to Jerusalem to worship during the festival. They went to Philip. He was from Bethsaida in Galilee and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and the two of them went and told Jesus. The hour 
has now come for the Son of Man to receive great glory. I'm telling you the truth. A grain of wheat remains no more than a single grain, unless it is dropped into the ground and dies. Those who love their own life will lose it. Those who hate their own life in this world will keep it for life eternal. Whoever wants to serve me must follow me, so that my servant will be with me where I am, and my father will honor anyone who serves me. I say, Father, do not let this hour come upon me. But that is why I came. So that I might go through this hour of suffering. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven. I have brought glory to it, and I will do so again. The crowd standing there heard the voice, and some of them said it was thunder, while others said an angel spoke to him. It is not for my sake that this voice spoke, but for yours. Now is the time for this world to be judged. Now the ruler of this world will be overthrown. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to me. In saying this, he indicated the kind of death he was going to suffer. Our Lord tells us that the Messiah will live forever. How then can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? will be among you a little longer. Continue on your way while you have the light, so that the darkness will not come upon you. For the one who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Believe in the light then while you have it, so that you will be the people of the light. After Jesus said this, he went off and hid himself from them. Even though he had performed all these miracles in their presence, they did not believe in him, so that what the prophet Isaiah had said might come true. Lord, who believed the message we told? To whom did the Lord reveal his power? Hopefully that fuller context will give us better insight into these 
a few verses that come at the end of this, and you also realize that of all the Tuesday events, this is the last real interaction Jesus has with the crowd that day. As far as the next day goes, we don't, we don't really even have any information that Jesus went back to the temple or uh, interacted with the people there. So it's these last events that are left lingering in the minds of people where we see this prophecy fulfilled. One of the things that we find in this lesson, and immediately John makes reference back to what was in the context, and uh, I've highlighted the words miraculous sign. And it's almost unbelievable that despite all of the things that Jesus had done uh, in the viewing of these people, uh, miracle after miracle, uh, amazing and unique lesson after amazing and unique lesson, still many of them were struggling to believe, and many of them were outright rebellious towards Jesus. And John makes the point, it, 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 it just didn't seem to make some kind of impact on them. And I want to just work through this one word that John uses, uh, semion, which can sometimes be translated as miracle. Um, in some context, that's exactly how it should be translated. Here they've tried to cover their bases with calling it a miraculous signs. Uh, the word itself actually does refer to a wonder or something that's extraordinary. And the root word tells us it's something that is meant to create a situation that grabs the attention of people. This impactful event was meant to really mark the minds of people and, and get them to notice something. And what John is making reference to is that voice from heaven. There are three times in the ministry of Jesus that God the Father speaks from heaven, and this is one of them. And since they are so rare and they are so powerfully impactful, we would hope that it would have made an impression on these people where they would have simply walked away going, that was, that was some powerful stuff. This man must be everything he claims and promises to be. Interesting enough, John also records uh, the Jewish reaction to this voice. Some thought it was thunder, and, and maybe that's an honest mistake. I've never heard the voice of God the Father from heaven. Maybe it does sound thunderous but obviously it could not be confused. Others were willing to go so far as to say it was the voice of an angel. My point is, look at what they're trying to do to explain away something that really has no human explanation. It's this concept of being blind to what's right in front of us. This is where some of the earlier work that we did in this series helps to uh, really work through this lesson. Uh, and I had told you uh, of the seven lessons for Epiphany, four of them come from the Gospel of John. And John's Gospel is uniquely recorded, and we talked about many of those unique differences uh, as to when it was written, the, the style, and some of these other things. The one point I would like to uh, refresh our memories on is that of all four Gospels, John records the least amount of miracles, eight in all. And five of those miracles are unique just to John's gospel. And we talked about the fact that one of the Holy Spirit's goals in the record of John's gospel, the life and ministry of Jesus, was to bring glory to his name. These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you will have life in his name. It brings glory to him. It brings glory to the Father. And ultimately, what is theirs becomes ours. God wants us to see his Glory, not only someday when we eventually arrive in heaven, but right now we are to see and acknowledge that glory, and it is meant to be a blessing in our lives. Well, how so? One of the things I told you about John's record of the miracles is that when he does record them, he goes into far more detail and explanation. He doesn't want us to quickly pass by these and go, oh, another miracle that Jesus did. That's pretty impressive. He wants us to think about these things. He wants us to really contemplate these things. That's one of the unique things about John's record. And it's good for us to know that this voice from heaven, this record of this, again, is one of those events that is only recorded in John's gospel. 
which immediately should tell us this is a, a record that is to point us to the glory of Jesus, to the glory of God. And so the obvious question is, what does God want us to see? What is he using John to lead us to see in this amazing event? And that's why we spent a little bit of time on these two preliminary events before watching the clip, because John goes on to explain, Jesus himself says, God the Father didn't speak from heaven for my benefit. Jesus isn't saying, I needed that validation. Uh, I don't need any more evidence or proof. I've given enough of that to you. My claim as Messiah stands. This voice was for your benefit, so that you will actually hear those words and believe. But there's a problem. And John also speaks to that. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. That's the Jewish objection to Jesus' claim as Messiah. Uh, and in some of those previous lessons, we've gone through some of what the Jews believed at the time of Christ. That he, the Messiah supposedly wouldn't even know who he was until God the Father revealed it to him. Um, that once revealed, he would be only a human rescuer, and that he wouldn't have a divine nature whatsoever. And day after day, Jesus proved that those teachings about him were completely false. This may be one of the clearest records of just how poorly these people had been taught about the expectations they were to have of God fulfilling his promise of Messiah. Somehow they believed that this very human savior would be revealed by God, and once revealed, that he would never die. And so maybe it makes sense then that when Jesus teaches these people about his death and resurrection, they have these violent objections to that because that doesn't fit their paradigm. That doesn't fit their view of what Messiah should be, which presents us with an interesting dilemma, and it's one that we ourselves can probably relate to. Uh, we've kind of touched on this before, but sometimes there's something right in front of us that we just can't see. Sometimes even God himself will reveal things to us that either we can't see or we just don't want to see. There's something about the way in which God has designed the human brain, which in a perfect world would have been a beautiful asset, and it's how our brain channels information. Unfortunately, because of our first father's rebellion against God and his design, one of the problems that we deal with on a regular and daily basis is the brain doesn't work the way it was designed, even when it comes to the powerful word of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. God's word is so powerful, it takes us past the misunderstanding of our broken minds. But we still have to deal with the reality that sometimes our very sinful natures try to fight against the beauty of God's message of love in the same way that the Jews fought against Jesus' claim as Messiah. Maybe you already understand and know this is something that you've studied, but for those of you who don't, this helps to explain why there are things that we see but still don't believe. Have you ever met someone that was so aggravating, so stubborn, and so out of touch with reality that they refused to look at objective factual information that disproved their point of view? Has that person ever been you? In today's video, we will be talking about a popular cognitive bias called confirmation bias that explains why it seems like sometimes we are living in a different reality from those around us. So what is confirmation bias? Confirmation bias is when people only look for and see information that confirms their own beliefs. For example, let's say that I strongly believe that eating a bag of chocolate every day is good for me. I will look for every piece of information that proves my belief that eating a bag of chocolate every day is good for me, while ignoring all of the information that disproves my idea. This can get especially tense with someone who does not believe that eating a bag of chocolate every day is good for me. 
You can probably see where this is going, and you've probably been in this situation where you're not arguing about a bag of chocolate, but something a lot more heated. So why does this happen? Well, it turns out that this is a result of our brains looking for more efficient ways to interpret information. Our brain looks at reality in a certain way and filters all information through that worldview. It is much easier to keep our current worldview than to keep changing it when new facts come along. So our brains have a bias towards maintaining what we already know and not shaking things up too much, as that makes it slower and more difficult to process information. The problem with this, obviously, is many times we ignore information that doesn't confirm what we already know in order to maintain our current worldview. Topics and beliefs that have a lot of emotion behind them can make people more prone to confirmation bias, especially if they identify with them. So where can you find this in real life? Well, everywhere you look really. But what I find really interesting about this concept is that it can be so blatant. For example, two people can look at the exact same piece of information and interpret it in different ways. It's not just the concept that we ignore information that doesn't prove our beliefs, it's also the concept that we interpret information in a way that will prove our beliefs. For years I never understood this. Um, my wife would ask me to stop at the grocery store and pick something up for her, and I could actually look at this item on the shelf, and I knew exactly what I was supposed to get, and I would reach out and grab it, take it home, and it was absolutely wrong. It was close, but it wasn't what she had asked for. It's confirmation bias. I, this is one time when I took my boys fishing. They were real little, and I stopped at the store and got some breading for the, the bountiful catch we had had. Um, and I looked at, I'll go, this is exactly what I want. Get home, bread the fish, and it's Cajun spiced. And nobody could eat the fish because my confirmation bias had gotten away. I was looking at something, and I just couldn't see what was really going on. This is the very same thing that was happening at this time. In fact, it got so bad for the Jewish people because Jesus didn't fit their idea of what their rescuer should be that the evidence that did exist they felt they should do away with, and that was part of our gospel lesson that because no human being had ever raised a person who had been dead for four days, and Lazarus was walking and talking proof that this man, at very least, is unique and special, and just maybe everything he is saying is absolutely true, they had to get rid of the evidence that didn't fit into their idea of who Messiah should be. In its most basic form, Jesus' truth of God's love and his desire to send a savior who would rescue us from our sins, who could basically look at lost and broken creatures and say, I love you, I forgive you, I want you with me forever, that so much went against what they wanted their savior to be that they had to get rid of him and any proof that validated his claim as Messiah. And we might think, what a depressing, sad moment in history and during Holy Week this might have been, except for the fact that God can take the most evil, the most dark things in this broken world and turn them to serve his purposes. This very rejection of Jesus was yet another evidence and proof that he was the Messiah. Because 800 years earlier, God had sent a prophet with another powerful message to his people, and he too was rejected. About 800 years earlier, Isaiah was sent by God to warn his people that because of their idolatry and their rebellion, 
that chastisement, discipline was coming, and that would come in the form of the Babylonian nation who would conquer Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and carry many of them off into captivity. And the people just couldn't get that into their heads. And so rather than heed the message of God and the amazing signs that Isaiah delivered with that message, they simply rejected it. And of course, history shows us everything that God said and promised came absolutely true. Isaiah, looking ahead, says this very same thing is going to happen to Messiah. And so while our hearts would break that people would reject him, we should also glorify God because this is the fulfillment of his word and yet another evidence that his son is our savior. Now is where we get to the point of the lesson where it becomes very difficult because these are the moments where we have to be most honest, honest with each other and honest with ourselves. So let me start. Um, you know, I grew up for years in the church, and I always loved hearing the amazing Bible stories, not only of God the Father and everything he's done in our world, but especially the stories about Jesus and everything that he came to do for us. And it always amazed me how the people who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus could not see what was right in front of their eyes. I mean, it's so obvious. There's no person who has ever walked the face of this earth that can measure up to the Son of God, our Savior. And as I'm working through this lesson, this is the picture that comes in my mind. Krause, this is you. You know that person who looks down their nose at others and tisks them because they're not measuring up to some certain standard. Um, there's a part of me and maybe there's a part of you that you recognize can be very self-righteous and proud. We've been blessed by God to be part of the church, to be part of his family. Somewhere along the way, God chose that his powerful message would be delivered to you in your lifetime. Or quite possibly, even as a youth, you were baptized, and the holy waters of baptism washed you clean and adopted you back into God's family. And for that, we can be eternally grateful. But the reality is that sometimes also gives us a certain type of bias against those who haven't been so blessed, who have not been raised hearing about the love of God every single day of their lives. And so it's not only foolish, but it is sinful for us to look down our nose at others who are still struggling to come to embrace this truth. Because the reality is that sometimes in our very own lives, we have the same blindness. Probably the one item that I can, from my own life, use as evidence of this is the fact that God works his amazing miracles day after day in every single one of our lives. Sometimes he does that through very extraordinary means. Sometimes he does that through the most normal means whatsoever. A process that he's designed or created, but it goes back to the original miracle of bringing life into existence. We watch God do this. We are the beneficiaries of God's love and his strong arm reaching out to rescue us time after time. And the amazing thing is, is the next moment we find ourselves in a tough patch of life, when it feels like the whole world is falling down around us, what do we typically do? Well, what I typically have done is, my first thought is to question God. Why? Or more honestly, why me? And then when I don't hear my answer, when the heavens don't open up and I don't hear the voice of God going, well, it's because I'm doing this, this, and this, God doesn't feel the need to fill me in on all those details, then usually the next thought in my mind is to challenge God. Hey, I've been doing your work. I've been trying really hard. Why would you let this happen to me? As if somehow, because of who I am, I should be above any of the problems that this life has now delivered to us because of sinful rebellion and sin. 
And when God sees fit to not answer that question, then I start to bargain. I think, well, God, if I do this, could you then do that? Or if I do that, would you then do this? The truth of the matter is that oftentimes the answer that God would otherwise give us will not fit in our small human brains. And a lot of times God will even use these desperate and difficult situations, whether it's happening to us or somebody else in our life that we love very, very much. What God is simply trying to teach us is that he is trustworthy no matter what, no matter what we think, no matter what we say, no matter what we might see. Because God can take even rejection Rejection of his own son. Rejection by this entire world. And take that and turn that into a matter of giving glory. How many times has God worked a miracle in your life where our default position should simply be that whenever we face any challenges or difficulties, our first response should be go to turn to God. God, please help me. I need a miracle. God, please help me. I'm a lost, condemned creature, but I know of your great love. I know what your son has done for me. I know I'm part of your family. Please, as a loving father, help me. It's the same thing we try to teach our children as we raise them in our family situation. And yet, as we grow up as Christian adults, sometimes we forget that lesson for our very own lives. See, it's oftentimes when we face the challenges of living in this broken world that we find we're fighting the very same problems that the people of Jesus' day were fighting. We have this picture in our head of who Messiah should be. We have this idea of how God should love us. We have this whole scenario worked out. And maybe you've even done that, where you're coming up with your 10 or 20 different human solutions to life problem, only to realize that each and every time they fall short. And there's nothing less than the love of God expressed through his son Jesus Christ as he gave his life for us and as he declares us, you are forgiven of all of your sins. I love you desperately. It's not until that lesson sinks into our minds and into our hearts that we can finally let go of the control that we witness in so many of these people. We find that as the Jews struggled to embrace what those Gentiles sought to see in Jesus by having an audience with him, God in his love shows us every single day. And if you wonder where that's at, or if you're in a season of your life where it's a little bit dark and cloudy and you're really struggling to see that, when part of your human nature and my human mind goes, where is the proof, where is the evidence, so that I can judge one way or another, by grace, the Holy Spirit has used the Gospel of John to teach us about the glory of God. And it tells us that we find that in one place. Listen carefully to the voice of God, and you will see every promise and prophecy fulfilled. Even the ones that you sometimes struggle to embrace and see. Trust everything that Christ has done for you, and you will see his glory. And one day, he will offer that same glory to you. We've mentioned ancient prophecies about a future Messiah that the Gospels say were fulfilled in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Remarkably, scholars count hundreds of these prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures, over 300 in fact. Even more remarkable, these predictions were made by multiple authors over the course of about a thousand year time period. 
When the resurrected Jesus was eating fish with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, he reminded them of the things that had happened during his ministry. For the first time, Jesus opened their eyes to all the prophecies that had been fulfilled by him. He said, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Luke 24, 44. Again, we're talking about Jesus being the fulfillment of over 300 prophecies without missing a single note. The odds of that happening by chance are zero. And so for any person to fulfill them all, it would take their circumstances being divinely orchestrated. In fact, that is the claim of the Gospels. Now, while many of the prophecies of the future Messiah were general in nature, some were very specific, like where the Messiah would be born and how he would die. The Messiah will be a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David. He will be conceived by a virgin, born in Bethlehem and taken to Egypt as a child. The Messiah will be heralded by the messenger of the Lord and anointed by the Holy Spirit to minister in Galilee, perform miracles, and preach good news. He will cleanse the temple, enter Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, be rejected by the Jewish people, and betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. The Messiah will die a humiliating death, involving rejection, mocking, beating, the piercing of his hands and feet, and the piercing of his side. He will be crucified with thieves, and his executioners will cast lots for his clothing. They will give him gall and vinegar to drink, but unlike the other victims, none of his bones will be broken. In the end, he will be buried in a rich man's tomb, but will rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. 